There have been over four weeks of giant and massive and inflamed riots in France. The movable feast now only serves one dish, which is flambe. I'm going to tell you what's going on at the deep philosophical roots and social policy roots that have driven or are driving this conflict. So the riots started in the provinces but have now spread to the capital. They were initially fomented over fuel price increases that resulted from a new climate change fuel tax. See, apparently it's one thing to just want to save the planet, but it's another thing to actually pay the bills to do so. These yellow vest protesters' demands now include an end to other taxes, an increase in the minimum wage, and Macron's resignation. Those of us, I guess, unlike Barack Obama, who warned the French people about Macron, were not heeded, and now they are seeing the price of not listening. Finance Minister Bruno, Bruno Le Maire recently reported that the cost of the protest could be as high as 0.1% of gross domestic product. Now, Macron was a former banker. He's the Rothschild baby. He did make changes to the labor code to liberalize or slightly loosen the sclerotic and arthritic French labor laws to make hiring and firing just a little bit easier. He took on some rail unions by forcing through changes to the National Rail Company. He did cut taxes on the wealthy who basically in France seem to be the only people still paying taxes in order to stimulate investment. And of course, now he is considered to be of the party of the wealthy and a toady and a lackey to the powers that be, which I guess all these guys are. And uh, here's a quote. Sources will all be below. With its popularity rating at record lows, recent polls put it at around 26% on par with Hollande, Macron, his capital city burning, and the populists he defeated during his stunning electoral victory last year, making serious electoral inroads. French President Emmanuel Macron finally caved and on Tuesday ordered a six-month suspension of planned fuel taxes, which spurred widespread and destructive protests across France. So French surrender, we'll be talking about that as we go forward. Just on Saturday, almost 2,000 people were arrested across France, a thousand, and 82 of them in Paris alone. Most of the suspects were arrested for acts of violence against a person in the custody of the public authority, possession of explosive products, or carrying weapons. So it is all hanging by a thread. And it's been a long time since France has had even the remote guarantee of social peace or state control over the geography. So what's going on? This has a deep history. It is not limited to France. And you can check out Yuri Bezmenov. Now, he was a KGB agent who defected to the West way back in the day, tried to warn us about communist subversion, leftist subversion. What is all of this conflict starting from? Now, the subversion, subversion that he talked about comes in four stages. So the first is you foster cultural decadence and demoralization of the population. So what you do is you, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll and nihilism and the future's uncertain and the end is always near, as Jim Morrison, who died at 27, I guess, along with a number of other noted uh, musical talents of the 1960s, Janis Joplin and, uh, and uh, Jimi Hendrix and so on. So you foster decadence, laziness, hedonism. Uh, you try and get everyone involved in massive uh, sexual exploits. You break down the family and you train people to hate their own culture, to hate their own history. So you focus on all the negatives of Western history, all the positives of everyone else's history, and anyone who questions it well, 
they're just immoral, right? So there's slavery going on at the moment, 30 million slaves going on in the world, more slaves than were ever enslaved in America, but you must forever circle the drain and continue to pound people, white people in America about slavery and anyone who pushes back, why, by gosh, they're just a racist. So you create all of this. And then what you do is you create social chaos. Another way that you do this, of course, is you say all human beings, all groups, all genders are absolutely equal. You ignore racial IQ differences. You ignore differences in IQ between men and women. And then what you say is that all outcomes arise from bigotry. And since you can't erase general biological differences between races and genders, you end up with a continual sense of frustration and anger and rage and hatred of the existing system because you're trying to make short people tall and tall people short. It doesn't work. So then what you do is you instigate a crisis that's going to lead either to a civil war or a revolution or an invasion. The invasion can be fast forward in terms of troops crossing the border, or it can come in the form of mass immigration. Now then, when all of this has come to fruition, you have a quick and savage coup, and that brings the country under the control of the Communist Party. That last stage is called normalization and you know a bunch of groups very good at taking over countries communists and islamists tend to be the two most successful and uh, this has been going on for quite a while now not many people know this but of course psychotic mass murdering son of a bitch communist leon trotsky invented and spread the word racism because he knew that multiracial societies result in social chaos if you ever want to know what the relationship is of communism to diversity well, ask them why they never criticized diversity in the Soviet Union, lack of diversity in the Soviet Union. Why did they never criticize a lack of diversity in China? Because <laughs> they were already communist, you see. And so what they want to do is bring um, races of different intelligence levels on average, again, never judge the individuals, but they want to bring races of different intelligence levels in and then say all of the resulting meritocracy discrepancies in outcome are the result of racism, thus setting all the races against each other and so on. And of course, the communists and the leftists never say, well, you know, there's way too many leftists in the media and there's no diversity, right? They don't care about diversity at all. They care about using inevitable social conflicts to undermine existing societies. And that's been going on for a while. The push for third world immigration came directly from the leftists, directly from the communists. And uh, it's been going on for quite some time. Even in the 1920s, the Comintern said, we're going to use and weaponize minorities, particularly African-Americans, against their society and so on. So the leftist push for civil rights and equality, who can argue with that? But the leftist push for civil rights uh, came out of a desire to destabilize because, of course, what happened was the pendulum swung too far and then you ended up with racial-based laws such as affirmative action, Section 8 housing, expansion and so on. And so, yeah, the goal is just to continually destabilize. So... They push for third world immigration to destabilize Western countries. And then, of course, because mass murdering psycho Leon Trotsky invented this word racism, anyone who objects to third world immigration is attacked as a racist. They try to destroy their lives, their reputations, their source of income, their careers, and so on. Now, of course, Karl Marx was horribly racist. But, of course, that's never mentioned. You can teach Karl Marx, in fact, Tens of thousands of American academics do. The Communist Manifesto is the most prescribed or the most, um, uh, it's the one that's in the curriculum the most of all economics texts, the Communist Manifesto. You can, even though Karl Marx was horribly racist, but you don't talk about that, of course, because racism is a weapon against others, not something that you want to turn on yourself. And this explains why the left turns on conservative blacks, because the whole point is to weaponize blacks against the existing system by teaching them 
that all discrepancies in group outcomes, not the result of race and IQ, not the result of cultural problems or cultural changes or father absence or any drug addiction or whatever it is, right? You say that it's always and forever the result of white racism and that weaponizes groups against others and they get with that divide and conquer stuff very, very well. So let's look at the 1960s in France. So communists have openly talked about the use of violence, right? They're in Communist Manifesto where Marx says, we disdain to hide our aims, we want to use violence and so on. But there was a movement which was more gradualist. It started with the Fabians, I think it was the year after Karl Marx's death in the late 19th century. And they said, yeah, we're going to do it slowly. We're going to do it culturally. And they got uh, Beatrice Webb and they got George Bernard Shaw and so on all in there to put a pretty human face on a rapacious, bloodthirsty doctrine. And they did a lot of subversion. There were hundreds of spies riddled through the American government. Uh, Joseph McCarthy was completely right but uh, he was not able to uh, keep his uh, movement going, particularly after he was stress murdered by the, um, by the press. Uh, and so they switched tactics in the 1960s in particular. So Stalin's crimes were revealed by Nikita Khrushchev, the uh, mass murder of dissidents, the show trials, the gulags, the cult of personality, all the psycho mass murdering stuff that you would expect from a guy who started his career as a bank robber. That's Stalin, not Khrushchev. And so they had to switch tactics. They couldn't go for direct subversion. And also, capitalism was really succeeding very well in the 1950s. So that was a big problem. So what happened in France? Well, in the 1960s, after a war in Algeria, French President Charles de Gaulle took a break from his mistress and side piece in an apartment down the road. And he directed France to pursue closer relations with Arab and Muslim states. And of course, communism, the left, and Islam have always had a close relationship. They both tend to dislike Christians somewhat intensely, and that makes them natural allies. You can think of sort of the Soviet Union and Russia uh, and, and Germany, sorry. So what happened in the 1960s was uh, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia ended up supplying huge amount of guest workers to France, and this sort of went through the roof. Now, there was no expectation of integration, and what happens is the numbers increased without pushback. See, when immigrant groups come in, if, they're if, if they are encouraged to sort of intermingle with the general population, then cultural issues, religious issues, compatibility issues, language issues, and so on become pretty clear. But if you create these sort of no-go zones or these areas where the general population doesn't go, and then you surround it with this moat of welfare, then it, they, people just stay out there, it's out of sight, it's out of mind, and their numbers can grow without causing a huge amount of pushback from the general population. So the common perception around, around all of these Algerian, Moroccan, and Tunisian immigrants was that, uh, oh, they're going to return home after their employment contracts end. And this, of course, is reinforced by the media of, uh, well, why would you worry? And the only reason you dislike it is because you're a racist. And, of course, big business likes it because they get cheap labor and, and, and the left likes it because they get more votes, all this kind of stuff. And so these migrants uh, were settled in the outskirts of big cities in the out-of-sight, out-of-mind situation. And of course, this is another reason why the left pushed for the welfare state, because you can't have mass immigration of incompatible cultures of lower IQ populations without a welfare state, because otherwise they can't survive, they can't succeed. They either turn to violence and provoke the general population immediately, or they just return home as a third of people who went to America in the 19th century did. So within 20 years, this group of migrants Miguel, Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia had swelled to millions and then was joined by sub-Saharan Africans. Now, as I've talked about on the show, 
Sub-Saharan Africans have an average IQ in the low 70s. It's a huge issue. And this is why you can't talk about race and IQ uh, in, in the general media. And this is why the one thing that the left gets really ferocious about is when you talk about race and IQ, because then you have a methodology or a position with which to oppose third world immigration that has nothing to do with racism. It's just saying, well, look, I mean, we have a Western society that was designed by some severely brilliant people that you need an IQ in the mid to high 90s at least uh, as an average to sustain. And therefore, if you want to have a freedom, if you want to continue to have your democracy, you can't have mass immigration from the third world because once your IQ on average in the society drops below 90, well, you, you, don't have, you can't sustain any particular freedoms. You don't get things like um, freedom of speech, separation of church and state, deferral of gratification, uh, and so on. So, you know, this is why you can't talk about race and IQ because they need... Nobody to talk about race and IQ because race and IQ is a way of explaining group differences without having to invoke racism. In other words, it's not blacks, it's not uh, East Asians, it's not whites, it's just an IQ thing. And all, all groups, whether they're white or East Asian or black or Hispanic, all groups where the average IQ is low are going to fail in a, an advanced meritocracy free market society. And so, yeah, you can just talk about IQ and then you can bypass the racial issues, even though there are differences between the races. So the economy slowed, social spending increased to pay for all of these migrants and mass unemployment set in and the unemployed did not go home. See, a lot of people were making decisions about migrant workers based upon a pre-welfare state society. Once you get a welfare state, why would they go home? I mean, they just make huge amounts more money on the welfare state than they do by going back home. So now we have a big problem. And again, this is all before. I was born probably before you were born. And uh, damn boomers, we just have to clean up all kinds of messes. So let's look. Quick sprint through the 80s to the 90s in France. So in 1984, there was a movement called SOS Racim, uh, SOS uh, Emergency Racism. And that was created by militant Trotskyists, also called Trotskyists, also called communists. And they began to push the narrative that any criticism of immigration was racist. And of course, this has been very successful because the media is all in on it and so on. They also began branding any criticism of Islam as Islamophobic. See, the word Islamophobic is not an argument. It is a way to shut down arguments. Now, in 1990, there was a communist lawmaker named Jean-Claude Gaisson, and he drafted a law, and in 1990, it was passed. And this law stipulated that, and I quote, any discrimination based on ethnicity, nation, race, or religion is prohibited. Hmm, how interesting. Now, you would think that foundational or fundamentalist doctrines like you find in Islam, where the world is divided into Muslims and non-Muslims, and the non-Muslims don't seem to have quite the same rights as the Muslims, would be used, uh, you could use this to say, well, I don't know about this whole Islam thing, but of course it's not designed to do that. What it's designed to do is shut down any criticism so that the social strife that is being fomented by immigration can continue without opposition or criticism or pushback or data or facts or any of that sort of stuff. So this law has been used to criminalize any discussion of Arab and African criminality or disproportionate use of welfare or welfare dependence by various ethnicities or religions, any questions regarding endless immigration from the Muslim world as any negative analyses of Islam is all being hit hard by this kind of law, and uh, it's absolutely brutal. It's never used the other way, of course, right? I mean, you could use this law to criticize uh, lots of religions, but you don't. Of course, you only use it to, to uh, push back on Christians and, and whites and so on. 
A lot of writers in France have been fined. Most of the non-leftist books on these topics have vanished from bookstores, and it's just become something you can't talk about, something you don't talk about. And this also happened with school textbooks. So the government asked the media to comply with this law, and school textbooks were scrubbed to facts about immigration, race IQ, Islam, and, of course, all the horrible things that Christians have done throughout history were highlighted. None of the negative things, uh, you know, like, I mean, Islam took over parts of India and killing 80 million people. That seems like quite a high number, uh, but you can't, you can't talk about it and so on. So hmm, this is the way the law was worked. And again, put into um, practice by a communist lawmaker. So this is the infiltration. These are the issues that are going on. So the voice of the people, the voice of the intellectuals, any capacity to push back and criticize, this has all been crushed in France, and it happened decades ago. So the situation exploded in 2002. So many Arab and African neighborhoods had become no-go zones. Radical Islam had begun to spread and had spread, and the Islamist attacks began. So every week, dozens of cars would be torched. Muslim anti-Semitism was also rising rapidly and led to an increase in anti-Jewish attacks. This emergency racism, this Trotskyist uh, group and other anti-racial organizations were silent on Muslim anti-Semitism, of course, right? I mean, even Jewish organizations are pretty silent on Muslim anti-Semitism. So a lot of the organizations that even claimed as their mandate that they were going to fight anti-Semitism were so terrified of being, being accused of Islamophobic racism, as if Islam is a race, which is not. Actually, when I was in Poland at the meetup, I met a uh, red-headed fellow, no shock there, who had converted to Islam, and we had quite a chat about it all, which was very interesting. So, yeah, being afraid of, of being called racist and Islamophobic, the organizations were also silent, even those who said their main job is to fight anti-Semitism. In October 2005, riots broke out across France. More than 9,000 cars were set ablaze. Hundreds of stores, supermarkets, and malls were looted and destroyed. And dozens of police officers were seriously injured. The rioting only stopped when the government reached an agreement to make peace with Muslim associations. So they surrendered. They caved. Because what else? What are the other options? Civil war? Well, we'll see. So... France is a complete mess. The French government has the greatest tax revenues as a percent of GDP. This is as of 2017. Uh, you can see their OECD average, and uh, France is, is above even Denmark and Sweden, Italy. Massive. Total tax revenues in France rose in 2017 to the equivalent of 46.2% of economic output. Uh, it is the most taxed nation. And this is just tax revenues. There's still a deficit, there's still debt, the national debt, and so on. So this doesn't even cover the amount of spending that's going on, but uh, it's, uh, it's brutal. And of course, a lot of this has to do with mass immigration, wherein the welfare state pays the immigrants to have children while taxing the domestic population, thus displacing the domestic population. So you can't afford to have kids if you're a white Christian France, a French person, but if you're an immigrant from sub-Saharan Africa or a migrant, uh, you have all the money in the world. They'll, in fact, pay you to have more and more kids. And because of rampant cousin marriage, you end up with massive birth defects and problems and IQ uh, issues because uh, cousin marriage strips 10 plus IQ points from the population as a whole. And uh, this causes uh, eventually uh, uh, socialized medicine to collapse uh, because it can't handle all of the birth defects and issues and so on. Criminality explodes because IQ 85 is a sweet spot for criminality. It turns local neighborhoods into uh, waste yards of, of broken human potential. It's not 
poverty that drives crime. And this has been fairly well established. You can look at my interviews with Dr. Kevin Beaver about this. It is crime that creates poverty. It's not poverty that creates crime. So, yeah, country's a mess. And, of course, some of the um, civilian upset was put down by, as you can see here, we've got some vehicles with what looked like to me an EU symbol. So uh, is there cooking towards an EU army? Well, both Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel have talked about the idea. In November, last Merkel said, the days where we can unconditionally rely on others are gone, adding, we should work on a vision to create a real European army one day. Now, that's because the EU is pushing countries to adopt suicidal policies and countries want to break free of that and therefore the EU is going to need an army like all collectivist organizations when it can't survive on rhetoric it just puts a gun to your head and says obey or die which is the state as a whole and collectivist super states in particular. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't appear out of the ether and there's a lot of intellectual work that needs to be laid down for this kind of insanity to manifest in the world. So we're going to talk about postmodernism, which really emerged in France uh, in the post-war period, 50s, 60s in particular. So here's a couple of quotes. This is from Aereo magazine. The modern era is the period of history which saw Renaissance humanism, the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, and the development of liberal values and human rights, the period when Western societies gradually came to value reason and science over faith and superstition as roots to knowledge, and developed a concept of the person as an individual member of the human race, deserving of rights and freedoms, rather than as part of various collectivist, sorry, collectives subject to rigid hierarchical roles in society. So yeah, the modern world was birthed out of the age of reason, the age of the Enlightenment and so on, where the seat of our capacity to understand the world sat squarely between the ears of every individual and was not part of some mystical platonic supergroup of priests and and. Uh, uh, politicians and, and kings and so on who told you what to do but could never explain why everyone could think for themselves and that's how we got the modern world right this uh, information that i put out recently that uh, 97 percent of scientific advancements in the world the entire world over between 800 bc and 1950 AD, came from uh, white countries came from europe and, and north america so so yeah and then what happened there's blowback right so what is postmodernism? it's a quote here it rejected philosophy, which valued ethics, reason, and clarity with the same accusation. Structuralism, a movement which often overconfidently attempted to analyze human culture and psychology according to consistent structures of relationships, came under attack. Marxism, with its understanding of society through class and economic structures, was regarded as equally rigid and simplistic. Above all, postmodernists attacked science and its goal of attaining objective knowledge about a reality which exists independently of human perceptions, which they saw as merely another form of constructed ideology dominated by bourgeois Western assumptions. Decidedly left-wing postmodernism had both a nihilistic and a revolutionary ethos which resonated with the post-war post-empire zeitgeist in the West as postmodernism continued to develop and diversify. Its initially strong nihilistic deconstructive phase became secondary but still fundamental to its revolutionary identity politics phase. So Marxism failed to play out and all of its predictions were falsified and it was basically just a steaming pile of leftist crap that fell apart with the slightest touch of empiricism or reason. 
So given that Marxism had failed empirical and rational tests, what happened? Well, you had to get rid of empiricism and reason. Of course, right? Right. In order to save the dead patient, you had to kill the society that was trying to bury it. So you had to get reason, rid of reason and evidence of standards because Marxism failed each one. Heavily subjective. So here's an interview with postmodern philosopher Laurie Calhoun. She said, oh, the, the interviewer said, when I had occasion to ask her whether or not it was a fact that giraffes are taller than ants, she replied that it was not a fact, but rather an article of religious faith in our culture. This is TFM. Totally freaking nuts. This is absolute mental illness. This is psychosis. This is like masquerading as philosophy. This is just, this is like Rand villains come to life. And this has happened, right? So in the recent protests against Dr. Charles Murray at Middlebury, the protesters chanted, science has always been used to legitimize racism, sexism, classism, transphobia, ableism, and homophobia, all veiled as rational and fact and supported by the government and state. In this world today, there is little that is true fact. Right? So again, Identity politics as a substitute for rational analysis and empirical evidence. I see this on Twitter every single day. The organizers of the March for Science tweeted, and I quote, colonization, racism, immigration, native rights, sexism, ableism, queer, trans, intersex phobia, and economic justice are scientific issues. Well, I actually agree that racism and immigration are scientific issues. Sexism is a scientific issue. And, uh, Yet every time you bring scientific facts, they go com completely mad about it because, of course, it's a competing explanation for disparities between groups in the world. So let's just look at one of the major figures of postmodernism, Michel Foucault. And, you know, I've tried plowing through a whole bunch of his stuff, and it is varying levels of pretentious incomprehensibility. But uh, let's look at a little bit of this dude's life. So he said, and this is, you know, just... Well, I won't tell you. Okay. He said, I am no doubt not the only one who writes in order to have no face. Do not ask who I am and do not ask me to remain the same. Leave it to our bureaucrats and our police to see that our papers are in order. Eh, that's great. Aristotle helped discover and codify logic and this guy is reproducing old Billy Idol songs. That's from the Archaeology of Knowledge. I'm telling you, go read my free book. It's a free book. You can go to freedomainradio.com, Essential Philosophy. It's free, audiobook, and, and, and you can get it on, on Kindle Dirt Cheap. It's really, really good. And it's very much against this kind of stuff. And, and he was not liked in school, which he doesn't mean anything, right, in particular. But here's a quote. His fellow students noted his love of violence and the macabre. He decorated his bedroom with images of torture and war drawn during the Napoleonic Wars by Spanish artist Francisco Goya. And on one occasion, Foucault chased a classmate with a dagger. So, yeah, obsessed with uh, death and murder and torture. And, you know, was hugely influential, although the least read probably and least understood because he tried willfully to be misunderstood. By the time of his death, Foucault had been described as perhaps the, most, the single most famous intellectual in the world. Now, like Jean-Paul Sartre, Foucault joined the Communist Party in the 1950s. He several times attempted and often threatened suicide, so he was a manipulative, bald son of a bitch. And uh, yeah, people who threaten suicide, I just find absolutely repulsive as a whole. Who did he admire? Well, one of his prime intellectual and moral heroes was sadomasochistic artist, the Marquis de Sade. Although Foucault felt that Sade had not gone far enough 
should, should have gone a whole lot further in his, in his torture and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and um, Foucault enjoyed imagining suicide festivals or orgies because, you know, co-joining sex and death. Ooh, that's so edgy. Ooh, sex and death. Of course, the only reason we have sex is because we die and we need new people. We need to recycle. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's just one of these, wow, the union of Thanatos and Eros and sex and death. It's so deep. It's like, nope. It's just sex and death. That's <laughs> all it is. Just constants in human life. So, when he was thinking about these suicide festivals, Foucault would say, those planning suicide, he mused, could, quote, could look, quote, for partners without names, for occasions to die liberated from every identity. Yeah, we get it. You hated yourself. I understand. And, you know, you had good reason to hate yourself as well. So there was a very interesting debate between a leftist that I still have a soft spot for who is, um, uh, who had a debate with Michel Foucault. So Noam Chomsky was having a debate. And Noam Chomsky was talking about, you know, objective ethics and virtues and so on. And Foucault said, ideas as responsibility, sensitivity, justice and law were merely tokens of ideology that completely lacked legitimacy. Foucault argued, the proletariat doesn't wage war against the ruling class because it considers such a war to be just. The proletariat makes war with the ruling class because it wants to take power. And, uh, well, um, Michel Foucault also addicted to sadomasochistic sexual torture. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but what kind of freaks of nature are these people put forward as, as scions of their ideology? So yeah, he was addicted to sadomasochistic sexual torture, including, and I quote, gagging, piercing, cutting, electric shocking, stretching on racks, imprisoning, branding. And Foucault died of AIDS after spreading it to many other people with knowledge. So he threatened to kill himself, tried to kill himself, ended up killing others through spreading AIDS and like torturing people. There's a biographer named Miller and he has a lot of notes talking about Foucault. And when he's discussing this sadomasochistic torture fetish that Foucault lived particularly in California, of all places. Here we go. So Miller, the biographer, informs us that his discussion is based on such works as, and I quote, The Catacombs, A Temple of the Butthole. Unurban Aboriginals, A Celebration of Leather Sexuality, and The New Leatherman's Workbook, A Photo Illustrated Guide to SM Sex Devices. Yeah, I know, it's my initials too. The biographer says, for the techniques of gay sadomasochism in these years, I have relied on Larry Townsend's The Leatherman's Handbook 11. So, yeah. Foucault, you got to read a book called The Temple of the Butthole to try and make sense of his life. What a butthole. Now, here's something else delightful about the intellectuals in France during this time. So, in 1977... A petition was addressed to the French Parliament calling for the abrogation of several articles of the Age of Consent Law and the decriminalization, you see, of all consensual relations between adults and minors below the age of 15, which was at the time the Age of Consent in France. <sighs> so in 
So who signed this let's legalize pedophilia law? Well, quite a few people. The document was signed. Hey, let's legalize. They want it. They'd say, let's legalize pedophilia. Who signed the document? The philosophers, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Louis Althusser, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir, and André Glucksmann by the philosopher and semi-otician Roland Barthes, by the novelist and gay activist Guy Hockingham, the actor-playwright, jurist Jean Danel, the writer and filmmaker Alain Rabé-Grillet, who was elected in 2004 as a member of the academic academy, who was elected in 2004, I'm sorry, I'm trying to do this without glasses, a little squinty, uh, a member of the Académie Française, the writer Philippe Solens, the pediatrician and child psychologist, psychoanalyst Francois Dotto, and also by people belonging to a wide range of political positions. So, yeah, major sections of the French intelligentsia were really, really keen to legalize pedophilia. So, yeah, according to um, a source I'll put below, yeah, he, um, Foucault uh, died of AIDS because he was, you know, Freddie Mercury style going through all the gay bars and knowingly infected several others in bathhouses. One of his last words, Michel Foucault, this lovely philosopher, one of his last words were, because he was dismissing safe sex, like why didn't you wear a condom? He said, to die for the love of boys, what could be more beautiful? According to reports, Foucault was also a pedophile, often acted as an apologist for pedophilia by acting as if distinctions between adults and children didn't exist. And Simone de Beauvoir was accused of pedophilia, had threesomes with her... um, academic uh, husband, Sartre, and so on, just just monstrous people, absolute psychopaths, sociopaths, child predators. I mean, this just absolutely monstrous. And, you know, I got to tell you guys, hey, France, if you let people like this run your intellectual life, it's hard for, my, for me not to say, burn, baby, burn. Here's something else Foucault said. He said, I wasn't always smart. I was actually very stupid in school. There was a boy who was very attractive, who was even stupider than I was. And in order to ingratiate myself with the boy, who was very beautiful, I began to do his homework for him. And that's how I became smart. I had to do all this work to just keep ahead of him a little bit in order to help him. In a sense, all the rest of my life, I've been trying to do intellectual things that would attract beautiful boys. And that's who's been in charge of your culture. So... That was Michel Foucault in 1983. What can I tell you? France, you reap what you sow. Ideas have consequences. You let these kinds of people run your society. Your society will do one thing and one thing only. It will burn until you learn. <laughs>